This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston, broadcasting on demand from Buffalo, New York, where today is Friday, December the 11th, 2020, and it's 20 years to the day since Masanobu Fuchi and Toshiaki Kawada marched into the Osaka Prefectural Gym and took on Yuji Nagata and Takashi Izuka some years before Izuka acquired those big metal fingers. One of my personal favorite matches, but it is day number 273 of the wrestling pandemic in the United States, but in the past week, business, in a lot of ways, has been picking up. We'll be talking about that, what's going on with AEW, with Impact Wrestling, Oh, and we'll be talking about the Code of Champions. We'll be going through the WrestleNomics Notebook. I've got age demographic breakdowns. There was another takeover. We'll talk about the reception from takeovers over time. And there's a new lawsuit involving the parent company of Lucha Underground and one of the top companies in Mexico, Lucha Libre AAA Worldwide. More on that later in the program. But first... Along with John Pollock of Post Wrestling, he and I have learned that WB will be launching an NXT India program with taping expected to begin in January. And it will be broadcast, streamed on the WB Network, and airing on Linear TV in India. I'll read from John's report on postwrestling.com. WB is embarking on a television series for the Indian market, which we have been told is expected to begin filming in the new year. We were told that the series is expected to begin filming in January, according to multiple sources. While plans can always change, as of several weeks ago, they were planning to feature an eight-man single elimination tournament for the new series. The series, described as NXT India, is expected to air on linear TV in India, along with a digital window through the WWE Network. As you may know, India is WWE's number two TV market for revenue. The company has a distribution deal in India with Sony Pictures Networks, a deal that was officially extended this past March when the partners announced they had a new five-year deal. The deal also gives Sony the rights to the WWE Network for its audiences through their own over-the-top platform, Sony Live. WWE content, including Raw and SmackDown, currently air in India on the network Sony 10. So I would think Sony 10 would be the likeliest landing spot for an NXT India program in India. Uh, it's not clear to me whether the NXT India program might be geo-blocked in India. It seems like it would be available, though, at least in the rest of the world, if not in India. But NXT India appears to be the next step in what WWE Executive Vice President Paul Levesque calls global localization. Longtime listeners of WrestleNomics may remember us talking about this strategy from time to time. It's something that Levesque introduced to an audience of business partners at WWE's 2018 Business Partner Summit. Global localization, where we're going into individual markets around the world, we will create scaled versions of the template we've created. Organizing tryouts, recruiting talent, establishing performance centers, and building on-the-ground NXT-style brands. You can already see this template starting to take shape in the UK. So I don't know of any other additional regional NXT brands that may or may not be in the works, but I would not be surprised if NXT India is not the only new brand that WWE launches in the new year. Uh, Another thing to add here, it seems like everybody has it on their mind that this will be something that is taped in India. Uh, At least initially, I would not be so sure. Uh, I see no reason why it couldn't be taped in WWE's current facilities that it's doing uh, production out of right now whether that be the Performance Center or the Thunderdome. Next, I turn to my notes in the WrestleNomics Notebook, which you can get access to at patreon.com slash WrestleNomics. A big, at this moment anyway, 28-page document, which right now is a Google Doc, but I will be posting it on patreon.com slash WrestleNomics by the time you hear this. Loaded with charts and tables and notes and things of that nature. I say 28 pages, but you're not going to flip through it. You'll just scroll through it like a normal 
website article. But multiple people have told me that they really enjoyed going through it and listening to the podcast and seeing the visual aids, the charts, the graphs, the tables, the things of that nature. And we will go through and reference many things in the podcast again today. So we'll start with early in the week on Tuesday, Impact Wrestling aired on Access TV with an advertised appearance of AEW champion Kenny Omega. And Impact Wrestling this week set its record in viewership, 221,000 viewers overall within the key demo, 98,000. Both of those are records for Impact on Access TV. Impact has been on Access TV since New Year's Eve of 2019. December 31st, 2019. So in total audience, this edges out the debut episode on Impact, on Impact, on Axis. The debut episode had 207,000 viewers. This one has 221,000 viewers. So just edging out the record by 14,000 viewers. Key demo, on the other hand. Key demo in the P18 to 49 demo. Uh, that record was shattered. The record uh, before... December 8th, this week, was 60,000 viewers. That record was just set on December 1st. And again, this week, 98,000 viewers in the key demo, shattering the record by more than 60%. And in fact, you have to go back to 2018 when Impact was airing on Pop to find an episode of Impact that was viewed by an audience as large as it was viewed this Tuesday. We don't have any data for the run on Pursuit in 2019, but given that Pursuit is in like how many homes here? Pursuit is in 30 million homes as of 2019. That's lower than Access. Access is in 50 million homes. TV, some frame of reference, the USA Network and TNT, they're in about 90 million homes. When Impact was on Pursuit throughout 2019, there was no viewership reported publicly that I'm aware of. And one person who I asked within Impact has never even seen viewership internally for the time that Impact was airing on Pursuit. But anyway, I think it's pretty safe to assume that Impact was doing some of its all-time low viewership when it was on Pursuit. Anyway, as you can see in the notebook, you have to go back to about the middle of 2018 to find a key demo rating that's as high as the key demo rating this week. And you have to turn to the, the final month's of the run on pop to find a total audience uh, that is this far over 200,000 viewers. Again, that's late 2018, but online on Twitch. So the, the TV program was aired on access TV. Again, access TV is not in the majority of, well, it is, it is in the majority of us cable homes. Let's see here. Okay. It would be in the majority. Uh, as of 2018, there were 90 million U.S. households with cable or satellite, down to about 87 million in 2019, access in about 50 million homes. So just over half of the U.S. cable homes have access to AXS, Access TV. But airing on normal linear TV, and it was also airing for free on Twitch. Normally, the Twitch stream for Impact is viewed by a few thousand people, at 8 o'clock on this night when the program began, 23,000 people were tuning in on Twitch. And within a few minutes, that quickly grew to well over 30,000. And as the program went on, the Twitch stream viewers continued to rise. Uh, Kenny Omega's segment was at the very end, which was clearly a smart move on Impact's part to program it uh, at the very end. Uh, if Omega appeared early in the program, people probably would have been tuning out uh, later on. But as Omega appeared on the screen at 9.48, the viewer count was up to 51,000 and grew to about 1,000 and a half more through the rest of the program ending at 10 o'clock. These minute-by-minute minute, uh, records of, of the Twitch stream viewers, which you can view right there on the screen, but Corey Gibson recorded uh, every two minutes the number of viewers that were watching concurrently on Twitch. So big thank you to him. And I, I did, was taking a look uh, at the front of Twitch. Uh, they show like the, the most viewed streams that are happening at the moment. Uh, Impact seemed to be going back and forth with uh, the Twitch stream of the NFL game that was happening at the time. But there were some streams of video games that were ahead of it. So again, 221,000 viewers on access, a 
in the demo, which is equivalent to 98,000 key demo viewers. Wade Keller with the Pro Wrestling Torch reports that in the P18 to 34 demographic, the young adult demographic impacted a 0.05 in that demo. Uh, that's higher than what NXT had done the, the, the prior Wednesday. NXT did a 0.04 in that demo. Again, impacted a 0.05 in that demo. NXT viewed by almost three times the audience overall, but pretty low in the young adult demographic. Uh, NXT did better this past Wednesday with a 0.09 in the young adult demographic. Kenny Omega is advertised to appear on Impact Wrestling again this coming Tuesday. And we'll see how many of the viewers from last week can be retained into this coming week. I would expect a, a little bit less, but higher than what Impact has been doing normally still. That was Tuesday, so that brings us to Wednesday with AW Dynamite and WNXT. AW Dynamite coming off of their Winter is Coming special edition of Dynamite the prior week. I was expecting viewership for Dynamite to be a little bit lower than it was the prior week. NXT, as it turns out, did almost identical viewership to the prior week. Just over 650,000 viewers. But AEW Dynamite did a higher viewership number this week versus the prior week versus the winter is coming heavily hyped build to be a pay-per-view like episode of Dynamite. This week, 995,000 viewers, just short of 1 million, higher than last week's 913. Key demo rating 0.45, higher than last week's 0.42. The highest key demo rating for AEW Dynamite since October 23rd, 2019, the number four episode of Dynamite. Total viewers of almost 1 million, the highest since September 2nd. On September 2nd, though, AEW was not going head-to-head with NXT because of preemptions. If you rule out those weeks where AEW and NXT were not running head-to-head, or really just that one week uh, on November, excuse me, on September 2nd, when AEW did 1 million viewers, if we rule that out, we go back to October 16th, 2019, is the last time that AEW broke 1 million. The last time that AEW did a total viewership that was bigger than what they did this past Wednesday. October 16th, 2019, episode number 3. So in the head-to-head competition, the highest total total viewership since week 3, the highest key demo viewership since week 4. For the second week in a row, Wednesday night was the biggest night for wrestling fans between the ages of 18 and 49, at least watching on linear TV. I, I, I tend to think wrestling fans are consuming wrestling in ways other than linear TV and keeping up with it, and that they probably make up the majority of the audience. More on that later. But in the key demo, NXT and AEW combine for the second week in a row to have a higher key demo viewership than either Raw or SmackDown. Significant because AEW and NXT are running head-to-head. Those viewers aren't being counted twice. Viewership is measuring the average viewers who are watching the show. They they take the minute-by-minute ratings and just average that across the entire time of the program. So even if I'm flipping back and forth between AEW and NXT, even if I'm flipping back and forth throughout the entire two hours... Because the viewership numbers that we, we are always talking about here are the average of the minute-by-minute minute numbers. I'm never being counted twice if I'm a, a Nielsen a household that is being measured in these ratings. So in the key demo, 18 to 49, Wednesday, for these two weeks in a row now, and it's happened uh, a handful of times in the past here in 2020, uh, Wednesday night is the biggest night in the key demo for wrestling viewership. Most of the time, though, it is Raw or SmackDown. Uh, Total audience, though, Monday and Friday, still belong to Raw and SmackDown. Total audience of Raw and of SmackDown are both larger than AEW and NXT combined, with the exception of one week back in September when uh, AEW and NXT were not running head-to-head. So we have not had a head-to-head NXT and AEW that have combined to provide a larger audience than either Raw or SmackDown in the same week. That has never happened yet, but it is getting pretty close. Uh, This week, 
AEW and uh, NXT combined for over 1.6 million viewers, a million six hundred fifty-four thousand, compared to Raw's 1.7 million, one million seven hundred thirty-seven thousand. Raw stays ahead by just five percent this week compared to the two Wednesday programs combined. In fact, the two Wednesday programs combined beat Raw in every demographic that Showbiz Daily reports, except for P50+. That's right, the two Wednesday programs combined to beat Raw in P18-49 by 21%. They combined to beat Raw in the female 18-49 audience by 31%. They beat Raw in the male audience 18-49 by 18%. They beat Raw people 18-34 by 23%. Beat Raw with the female audience 12-34 by 25%. Beat Raw with the male audience 12 to 34 by 9%. Beat Raw with people 25 to 54 by 7%. But Raw staying ahead in P50 plus by 31%. And staying ahead overall by 5%. Staying ahead by less than 100,000 viewers. Uh, AEW doubled NXT in most demographics. But what about the, the, the comp between AEW and Raw? And by the way, we talk mostly about Raw here because we still get the full, what, what, what are the number of demographics I just went through? How many of them are there? There's nine if we include the total viewership number, uh, eight if we don't. Uh, Raw, because it is on cable, we get all those numbers for. SmackDown, because it is now on broadcast TV, we get fewer uh, demographics for and we get... Those demographics reported in a rating that is only to the first decimal place. So we get less granularity, you might say, for SmackDown as compared to Raw. Uh, Raw is doing, usually, a little bit lower viewership than SmackDown. And SmackDown is benefited by being on Fox, which has wider reach. But what if we compare AEW Dynamite to just Raw this week? Well, Raw still beat AEW Dynamite in every demographic. But the margin by which Raw leads AEW is getting smaller. You can see this in the WrestleNomics notebook. AEW is chipping away at Raw's margin. I've broken this down here in monthly averages for each demographic. What's the margin? How much percent does Raw lead Dynamite by? Going back to the beginning in October 2019. Even in that opening month of October 2019, where AEW was really strong, and I think there's a lot of uh, curiosity viewing that tapered off as the year went on, or as the end of the year went on, uh, Raw is beating AEW by 100% in multiple demos. And as November and December goes on, they're beating AEW by 100%. In November, by most In most demos, they're beating AEW by 100%. In December, they're beating AEW in all demos by 100%. So they're doubling AEW in all eight of the Showbuzz Daily demos. And then the new year comes, and then COVID happens, and by May, they're no longer doubling AEW in every demo. As you may know, with COVID, the viewership for Raw and SmackDown declined quite a bit. And through the summer, there appeared to be no end to the decline, until the Thunderdome came in and Roman Reigns came back and viewership, the viewership fall for Raw and SmackDown has stabilized since then. Meanwhile, AEW and NXT have recovered basically to pre-COVID levels. Raw and SmackDown has stabilized, but they have not recovered to pre-COVID levels. And now we have AEW Dynamite starting to grow, at least in this two-week run here. I suspect things will be different uh, later on this month. And AEW is going to be pushed back because of the NBA on the 23rd. But I digress. You can see that margin getting smaller and smaller over time. And if we look at this week, Raw led Dynamite in the key demo by just 14%. Led with women between 18 to 49 by just 3%. Led with men 18 to 49 by just 18%. Led in the young adult demo of 1834 by just 7% led with the female audience 12 to 34 by just 2%. Raw, though, still leading greatly with the male audience 12 to 34 by 43%, and 
the 25 to 54 audience by 30%, but still blowing away, uh, still doubling, more than doubling Dynamite with the people 50 years old or older. 189% margin for Raw over AEW with people 50 years or older. And therefore a 75% lead with the audience overall. Now that's that comparison is, is with Raw over the course of its three hours. As you may know, the last hour of Raw is often the least viewed hour of Raw. And this week, that last hour of Raw was actually less viewed than Dynamite in the F18 to 49 demographic, the P18 to 34, and the F12 to 34. So three demos that the final hour, the least viewed hour of Raw, uh, did not beat AEW by. Three of the Showbuzz demos, and according to my spreadsheet, that is the first time that that has happened. There have been some weeks where AEW has led the lowest hour of Raw in two demos, but never by three. So what we're seeing here is an unfolding of Raw having its lead chipped away on. And I think that's a trend that we're going to continue to see develop over time. And I I think we'll see it in young demos first. I don't know when or if uh, NXT or AEW combined or AEW alone will ever get that P50 plus demo. Maybe uh, maybe there's just there's got to be a campaign to capture those older viewers, take out ads in AARP or something. Sting is back. Sting is back. He's like 61. It's funny though, even in this week where you know we talk about the the younger demo so much in the 18 to 49 demo, the P50 plus demo this week for Dynamite, despite despite it having this big rating this week and last week, pretty normal. P50 plus rating for, for dynamite, uh, in the high twenties, there's a number of weeks, uh, earlier on in the, in the entire history of dynamite where they're doing higher numbers with the older viewers. So not capturing that older audience, but AEW, we are told and TNT, uh, they don't care so much for that 50 and older audience. They are selling ads probably to advertisers who are buying on the 18 to 49 demo, which is why we have dwelled on this demo so much. I will say though, I have been tracking uh, all the demos before AEW ever existed in this, uh, this, this spreadsheet, this Google sheet that I have that maybe some of you listening have, have, uh, have opened. It is open for the public. You can find, I think it's linked. It is linked on wrestlenomics.com in the resources section. This Google Sheet that grows, it grows and it it evolves and it mutates and it gets new tabs and the tabs get reordered. And now that now I know how to do pivot tables, there's pivot tables all over this thing. Whenever I like change a number in the cell, it's got to reload for like 30 seconds to update because it's so big now. But there's a lot of good information in there. Uh, There is now impact viewership in there going back to 2015. And in fact, thanks to Lavi Margolin, we now have TV home coverage for all the cable channels that are in the U.S. universe. That information is in there. You can check out Lavi's new podcast, by the way, The Business of the Business. See, it's like a, it's like a team. There's a WrestleNomics network of people who help me out a lot. Speaking of which, in quarter hour viewership, with the data that Corey Gibson helps me gather from the Wrestling Observer Newsletter. Sometimes I get the quarters on my own and I report them, I think, before anybody. Most of the time, though, we're relying on the Observer here. But this week, five quarters for Dynamite, over one million viewers. Just short of one million on average throughout the program. Again, that was 995,000 viewers throughout the entire program. But four quarters, quarter two, three, four, and five all over 1 million viewers total. Those five quarters uh, principally consisted of the Cody and Sting segment in quarter two, along with the Darby Allen video. Quarter three with the FTR versus Varsity Blondes tag match. Quarter four with the Dustin Rhodes versus 10 match, yes, was viewed by over 1 million people, uh, followed by the Shaq and Brandy Rhodes interview. And then quarter five with an inner circle promo and FTR and Tully Blanchard interview in the beginning of the six man tag match with Butcher Blade and uh, I almost said Kofi Kingston, Eddie Kingston versus 
Pentagon, Phoenix, and Lance Larcher. Again, those five segments over 1 million viewers. I should say, I should say quarters, not segments. For NXT in the quarters, uh, they peaked with the opening quarter. When you see the opening quarter uh, have a really big number and it drop off from there, I think it just has a lot to do with how many viewers were watching whatever the lead-in program was. For NXT, it is usually Law & Order. For uh, AEW on TNT, it is usually a movie. So just w- when you see uh, quarter one have a big number and then fall off, I don't see that necessarily as the fault of, of the wrestling program, especially if that number is very high. But this week, uh, Q1, uh, 782,000 viewers for NXT. And it drops off to stay within the 600,000 range for the rest of the program. And by the way, people have asked me, why why are, I guess, WWE's viewers especially, but why are wrestling viewers overall so old? And I think a lot of what's happening is just... The, the sample that we get is a sample. Um, it's a sample of Nielsen Holmes. It is, it is Nielsen Holmes. But it is also what we're getting is these are the people who consumed this TV show with linear TV. And as we know, people consume media with all different sorts of devices. And, okay, but let's get this out of the way if you watch it on hulu live or if you watch it on sling like i often watch tv i don't have cable or satellite i have i have sling i think sling orange i don't know but it it gives me tnt and it gives me usa and it gives me access um if you have an mvpd subscription which is cable or satellite or a v virtual mvpd subscription which is Hulu Live or Sling or YouTube TV, then you are being counted. Well, I don't know if you are being counted, but you could be counted. Uh, how Nielsen works, I understand, is they have devices. They're not relying on somebody hand-filling in a survey. They have devices that are connected to the TV that pick up um, a audio signature that we humans cannot hear, but that the device can hear it's at a certain frequency that would be outside of our uh perception but but is you know but is picked up by the device so if you are watching via cable or satellite or one of these virtual mvpd services what does mvpd stand for multi video something multi-channel video programming distributor anyway if you're watching via uh, an mvpd or a virtual mvpd that's getting picked up. What it's not picking up, if you're watching uh, YouTube clips of you know that WWE puts up, those aren't being recorded. If you're watching uh, on Hulu the next day, that's not being recorded. That's not live same day anyway. If you're watching on DVR within the same day, you'll be recorded. If you're watching uh, on DVR later, you'll be picked up in, in the DVR plus three or plus seven, depending on how many days later. You're watching, my, but my point is, the behavior of you know the, the types of people who are still watching linear TV uh, over index in older demographics. You may know people personally for whom this is true. You may be a younger person or know younger people who almost never watch cable TV. You may be or may know older people who mainly consume video through linear TV, pay TV, cable TV whatever you want to call it. And bearing that in mind, so I I guess I think the Showbiz Daily numbers, the viewership numbers, which are ultimately from Nielsen, the P50 plus demographic is overrepresented, I think. I think there are a lot of younger people who are, if not watching the actual programs, are at least following along uh, with, with various wrestling brands. And they're... Their presence is under-indexed, is, is under-accounted for. Anyway, let's get to the point. If you look at the WrestleNomics notebook under the heading, Why are W viewers so old? You'll see I have some pie graphs there. They're delicious. 52% of Raw's audience from January to November of this year, 52% was over the age, was, was either 50 
or older. Uh, for NXT, that portion of the pie is even bigger, bigger by a little bit. 56% is P50 plus for NXT. Uh, for AEW Dynamite, the P50 plus is 42%, so less than half. Uh, I don't have this for SmackDown. Again, as I mentioned earlier, we get, we get less dem- demographic information for SmackDown now that it's on Fox. And in fact, this week I did some Brandon math, as one might call it, and I have, I have done an estimate for the P2 to 17 audience, the audience between the ages of 2 and 17. Basically, what I did was I took all the, all the demo information that we have. We have the demo information from Showbuzz Daily in the form of ratings. We don't have it in the form of actual viewers, with the exception of the total audience. Showbuzz does give us the total audience in actual numbers of viewers. Otherwise, all, all that demo information that we talk about from Showbuzz Daily are ratings. The rating is a percentage of the relevant population who could have watched who did watch. So when we talk about Raw doing a 0.05 rating in the key demo, what's being said there is that one half of a percent of the 1849 demographic, one half of a percent watched Raw. And this is, this is the national rating. So I think this is the entire nation uh, that has a TV, which is like 96% or 98% of the population. So anyway, I took the the demo ratings data that I have, and I also have some viewership, actual counts of viewers from an industry source. And I've matched that up and sort of deduced, well, how many viewers per ratings point have we, have we got here? And you can do the algebra and deduce basically what are, or how many viewers a rating is representing. Basically what I end up learning is that the rating that the the denominator for P1849 is is like 130 million people. If you go into the census data, census.gov, you can find the count of the U.S. population by each age, not just age group, but each age. So like they have data on, this is how many people are in the U.S. who are age 2 to 99 in every year, right? So I can figure out how many people are in the U.S., who are 50 years old or older, and then apply that I know 96% of the U.S. has a TV, and I can figure out that P50 Plus is about 110 million people, and then I apply that to the P50 Plus demo rating. Anyway, from that, we can just do subtraction and say, here's the total audience, subtract the, the P18 to 49, subtract the P50 Plus, and what we have left is P217. Now, I know what you're thinking. Kids don't watch TV anymore. Well, they do in, in smaller numbers. Uh, 8% are watching AEW or NXT. 8% of their audience is 2 to 17. Uh, 9% of the Raw audience is 2 to 17. And as you can see in the pie graphs, uh, the P18 to 49 demo is overwhelmingly carried by the 35 to 49 demographic. So that, that, that key demo that we talk about all the time is uh, disproportionately carried by the older half of that key demo. So anyway, I won't uh, bore you and continue to list numbers. That's in the notebook, patreon.com slash There's also some area graphs illustrating the change by month over time throughout 2024 for those three programs that we have that information for, Raw, NXT, and AEW Dynamite. And breaking news, as I record this, WWE SmackDown is airing live on Fox. Live, in fact, for the first time from the... Tropicana Field, and it is on mute on this TV that is above my head here. I don't know that I've caught an entrance yet, but it, you, you, you wouldn't know that this isn't the Amway Center by looking at it. But anyway, uh, SmackDown advertising that next week, Friday, SmackDown will be preempted to FS1 due to the Pac-10, no, excuse me, Pac-12 College Football Championship. Uh, there's more uh, ratings slash viewership stuff in the notebook, uh, including the heading, RWE's ratings actually bad, part some random Roman numeral, uh, as well as a comparison uh, on uh, NBA on ESPN compared to uh, NXT and AEW on Wednesday nights. Whether there's any effect, but I think I've talked enough about ratings for one episode here. 
So we'll move on from that for now. In a story first pointed out by Lucha Blog, in the U.S. District Court, Central District of California, there is a new lawsuit in the world of professional wrestling. Lucha Libre, FMV LLC, which is a Delaware company, which is the parent company of Lucha Underground. Lucha Libre, FMV is the plaintiff in a complaint filed December 8. They are suing Promociones, Antonio Pena, S.A. de C.V., a Mexican corporation. Lucha Libre FMV is suing for breach of written contract, breach of implied covenant and good faith and fair dealing, copyright infringement, trademark infringement, and unfair competition. Uh, Promociones Antonio Pena is the parent company of AAA. So the gist of this is Lucha Libre FMV claims that they have exclusive rights to any AAA business outside of Mexico. Yet, since they've obtained these rights, AAA has made a number of deals with Marvel, with YouTube, Twitch, Facebook, Pluto, with the Warner Media-owned space in Latin America. The complaint says that Lucha Libre FMV owns all rights in and to the world-famous Lucha Libre AAA Mexican Masked Luchador Wrestling League and events throughout the world, except in Mexico. LLFMV owns the exclusive right to distribute any and all Mexican Wrestling League live events and entertainment content outside Mexico. The exclusive right to sell Mexican Wrestling League Mexican Wrestling League here refers to AAA merchandise outside Mexico and the exclusive right to otherwise exploit and monetize AAA anywhere outside Mexico. So basically there they're saying that they have the rights to live events, to content sales, like video sales, uh, and the exclusive right to merchandise sales. So there are companies within the company, Lucha Libre FMV, Factory Made Ventures LLC, one of the members of Lucha Libre FMV. The complaint reads, first learned about the defendant's misconduct last year when it discovered during diligence for a potential sale of the company that the defendant had licensed non-Mexican distribution rights to Facebook, Turner International, I believe that refers to the space deal, Pluto TV, and Twitch. And this led to a dispute between Factory Made, Promociones, and Antonio Pena, Dorian Roldan, who's the majority owner, and Chief Executive Maricelia Pena. That dispute led to settlement discussions They mediated in January of this year, but they were not able to resolve their differences. Uh, Meanwhile, Pena and Roldan have entered into yet another, uh, the the plaintiffs say, unauthorized deal, this time with Marvel, which is now owned by Disney. Uh, The deal between AAA and Marvel was just announced in October, where AAA is going to introduce four characters who are based on Marvel IP, uh, four wrestlers. LLFMV argues that by entering into these deals, AAA or Promociones Antonio Pena has directly infringed LLFMV's copyrights and registered trademarks while inducing Marvel, YouTube, Facebook, Turner International, Pluto TV, and Twitch to do the same. LLFMV therefore files this action to enjoin further infringement of the exclusive intellectual property rights it purchased from AAA and to secure a money judgment for millions of dollars that they have stolen from us purportedly selling their rights to those third parties, which they had no right to sell. We have a nice plug in here for uh, Triple Mania, which is happening uh, Saturday night, maybe tonight as you listen to this. <laughs> Streamed live on YouTube and Facebook behind closed doors at Arena Ciudad in Mexico City. Uh, LLFMV says this court, which is the Central District Court of California, has jurisdiction because LLFMV is located in Los Angeles. Uh, PAP did business with LLFMV in Los Angeles. And PAP, again, Promociones Antonio Pena slash AAA, entered into transactions with Marvel and others in Los Angeles. And LLFMV suffered the harm described herein in Los Angeles. Okay. 
So then the complaint provides a relevant uh, set of events, history, who's who, as it relates to this case. But in paragraph 29, we get an interesting tidbit here. Uh, In addition to their tireless efforts to grow the business, factory made Alice Garcia and Antonio Cue made significant financial contributions and secured financial commitments that generated $47.5 million in funding for the production and marketing of Lucha Underground and exploitation of worldwide rights to the Mexican Wrestling League slash AAA. This also mentions that Lucha Underground was the highest rated program on El Rey. So $47.5 million. I would guess that that's the amount of revenue that Lucha Underground generated. That's, That's the suggestion that I'm getting here. Between everything, probably. Between El Rey and Netflix... Netflix is specifically mentioned in the, in the previous paragraph. As you can tell, by the way, I'm not a lawyer. I am attempting to reach out to some lawyers to help me understand this. But uh, other interesting facts in this complaint, or interesting claims, I should say. Factory made discovered that Dorian Roldan had caused Promociones Antonio Pena to enter into a, the following purported agreements, which I will summarize. Uh, with Twitch providing a $650,000 minimum guarantee against their revenue share. So AAA getting upfront $650,000 as a minimum guarantee is the claim. A worldwide distribution agreement with Facebook Live providing a $500,000 minimum guarantee against a revenue share. A licensing agreement with Turner International, which seems to be related to, to the space deal for linear broadcast and authenticated video on demand in the United States and throughout Latin America, a license fee nearly... $300,000. Hmm. That's interesting to know. <laughs> no mention of the amount of time that that is over or the or the other so far aforementioned agreements. Pluto TV, a $250 minimum guarantee against a revenue share. Here, here we have some, some interesting narrative in, in paragraph 39. Quote, when confronted with these purported deals, Roldan did not dispute their existence or their terms, nor could he. Instead, Roldan absurdly argued that despite the deal's international scope, only a small percentage of their value, if any, was allocable to non-Mexican territories. It goes on, while the parties attempted to work out their differences with respect to those deals, or so factory-made Garcia and Cue thought, Peña and Roldan were quietly added again, this time. They negotiated the recently announced deal with Marvel to exploit existing and to-be-developed Mexican Wrestling League content, characters, and merchandise outside of Promociones Antonio Pena's lone territory, Mexico. Then we have some timeline of events. Uh, on October 28th of this year, 2020, Dorian Roldan re- resigned as manager of LLFMV. A week later, unsolicited, he sent LLFMV a promissory note on behalf of Promociones Antonio Pena in the amount of $391,719 payable over five years. That's about $78,000 per year. Then on November 9th, 2020, Roldan wrote that the promissory note was for LLFMV's share in the licensing fee revenue from Facebook, Turner International, Pluto TV, and Twitch through 2019. Then on November 13th, the promotion wired $31,719 to LLFMV for, quote, the first installment payment, end quote. So that looks to be 10% of the promissory note. So the complaint goes on basically saying, uh, you've made deals of, you know, in, in value of at least $2.5 million, more than $2.5 million from various third parties, and... That's that's based on information that's 18 months old, and that excludes any unknown revenue from YouTube. So it sounds like the, the plaintiffs are saying that you're trying to get away with paying us just over $300,000, but you really owe us a lot more, more like in the millions. So that is the complaint. Again, that is dated March 8th, 2020, just uh, two days prior to, to when I'm recording this. A Cubs fan at thecubsfan.com or at luchablog.com also has a summary of this complaint. Again, I'm, I'm going to show this to others who have a better legal understanding than I do, and maybe we'll update 
you about that in the future. Just the the most interesting takeaway I get from this is again that uh, that mention earlier here in the complaint that is it forty seven and a half million dollars related to Lucha Underground. That's really interesting, and that the licensing fee and I don't know what the timeline of the licensing fee is, but that that licensing fee for space is $300,000. That's interesting in light of AEW has recently made a deal to be uh, broadcast on space in Latin America. Maybe that $300,000 gives us some idea about what AEW is getting uh, to be to be on space. Again, it's hard to to say what that means though without, you know, is it $300,000 for one year or more than that or less than that? Don't know. And then from there, let's take a detour into the world of W Corporate. That's right, your ratings may be good. Your shows may be well-reviewed, but let's talk about what really matters. Do you have a mission? Do you have a code of champions? We've got some poetic and artistic excerpts from the world of Community.w.com. World Wrestling Entertainment has a mission statement. It has a code of champions. In November 2019, WWE introduced the code of champions to reinforce the company's mission, putting smiles on people's faces. In 2020, employees are encouraged to celebrate each of the eight values. Be a storyteller. Show your passion. Stay curious. Have fun. Give back. Be a fan. Lead by example. Earn respect. And provided with inspiring campaign tools, workshops, and volunteer opportunities that allow them to be champions of the brand. Through the power of our brand and the dedication of our people, we live by a code of champions to bring our mission to life. We know lead by example is to be inclusive, honest, and open, to embrace differences, and to empower everyone. As an organization, we are committed to creating a safe and inclusive workplace for all W. WWE employees. I work every single day of my life, often sacrificing time with my family for all of you. And this is the respect that you show me. NXT had a takeover on Sunday night that notably was also on pay-per-view for the first time in NXT pay-per-view or an NXT takeover has been on traditional pay-per-view, to my knowledge, of course, also on the W Network, where the vast majority of people were consuming it. Did people like the takeover? Are takeovers still as well-received? Are they still as good as they were in years prior? Well, we look to Cage Match for some hint on that. Cage Match, where for most takeovers, you've got over 100 votes. The most recent takeover from Sunday is at 78 votes right now each giving a rating from 0 to 10. The War Games takeover from this Sunday is right on par uh, with the last one, in fact, both standing at 8.4 right now out of 10. The table I have in the notebook was captured a little bit earlier when it was at 8.3. But average for the year at this point is about 8.0. There's been five takeovers this year. So averaging 8.0 over five takeovers in 2020. How does that compare to prior years? That is down... From prior years. Uh, 2019 and 2018 and 2017, there were five takeovers. Uh, last year, average an 8.6. Year before that, a 9.0. Year before that, an 8.5. So it's a little bit down. Still, I would say you know, this number gives me the impression that takeovers are generally still well-received. We did have two takeovers that were in the 7 range in terms of their average rating in June and August. Those takeovers a 7.0 and a 7.3. How does that compare to AEW pay-per-views? AEW pay-per-views usually do somewhere between 8 and 9, except for All Out in September, which 
on Cage Match has an average rating of 5.9, by far the lowest in AEW history. But the November pay-per-view, full gear, currently sitting at an 8.9, only short of the debut pay-per-view, Double or Nothing 2019. So they had a a relatively bad pay-per-view in September in terms of reception, but redeemed themselves in November for full gear. Compare this uh, average, so the average right now for 2020 for EW is 7.9, just one decimal, one-tenth of a, of a point shorter than NXT's 8.0 average. Compare this to the W main roster with its 12 pay-per-views a year in 2020. I excluded the Saudi Arabia pay-per-views, which really dragged the, rate, the average down. Uh, in 2020, a 6.4 rating, 6.4 is the average for main roster pay-per-views in 2020. Uh, That is up slightly from 2019 with a 6.0. Nonetheless, you got main roster pay-per-views being uh, received about a point or a point and a half lower than either NXT or AEW's peak events. More information on that in the notebook, where you also find the the Code of Champions title belt faceplates for each one of those core values. Speaking of WWE and NXT and NXT India, our friends at WWE Public Relations tweeted out a link to a PDF that contains a link to a Sports Business Journal article, which is behind a paywall, which explains why they tweeted out a link to a PDF. But it contains quotes from Executive Vice President Paul Levesque's appearance, where Levesque shed light on what he looks for in attracting top-tier talent. Charisma is king, said Levesque. But really what I want to talk about is what WWE highlights later in the release, among other takeaways from Levesque at IAF. On the importance of the WWE Performance Center, Levesque says, quote, really the key to the future for us because it allows us to create the stars of tomorrow. Uh, That is, he's referring to the WWE Performance Center. Uh, He goes on, And when you look at the rosters of Raw, SmackDown, and NXT, but especially of Raw and SmackDown, 95% of those talent came through the Performance Center and that system. End quote. Uh, He also mentions global markets that that WWE will prioritize over the next two years. Levesque says, quote, The Middle East, India would be especially high on the list that we have. Over time, our intent is to build a performance center in India and to have people training there and build an NXT brand. Which seems to line up with the news that we reported today about NXT India happening next year. But anyway, 95% of those talent came through the performance center and that system. He's talking about the talent that are on the rosters of Raw and SmackDown. And how true is that? And we can play a semantic game and say, well, what does it really mean to have gone through the Performance Center? What does it really mean to have been developed by the Performance Center? Is there not some other system, perhaps a system that W doesn't have control of, namely independent wrestling and other wrestling companies that have developed, or at the very least, have contributed to the development of a number of W wrestlers who are appearing on television regularly, if not the majority of them. Uh, We only need to go back and look at the data that I put together for the WWE Developmental Research uh, article that I did uh, with help from Matt Schroeder that was posted a few weeks ago. I think that was tweeted out again as a, in case you missed it recently. If we want to talk about who are the wrestlers that WWE has on television right now, or who have made it to television since the opening of the Performance Center, how many of those wrestlers came to WWE without any other previous wrestling experience? Now, clearly, that's not what Triple H means here when he says that he generated 95% of these wrestlers out of the Performance Center. But that's how one might uh, read it if one knows little or nothing about the wrestling business, and if you're just listening to him at the conference you might think that WWE is producing 95% of their wrestlers from scratch in Orlando at the Performance Center. So a quick review of the pure Performance Center projects. My self-defined criteria for this 
is you must have had at least 10 main roster matches and you must have achieved that milestone on or after January 1st, 2014, roughly six months after the Performance Center opened. And you must have zero wrestling matches as far as cagematch.net is concerned in their records before you came to WWE. So that's a pure PC project who has made it to the main roster. You had to have had your 10th main roster match at least six months after the opening of the Performance Center. You got to have no matches before you came to WWE. You got to have at least 10 main roster matches. So who is that? That is 21 people. 21 wrestlers, and they are Charlotte Flair, Baron Corbin, Braun Strowman, Mojo Rawley, Enzo Amore, Lana, Dana Brooke, Jason Jordan, Alexa Bliss, Carmella, Nia Jax, Rick Moss, Liv Morgan, Mandy Rose, Sonya Deville, Razor, Occam, Ronda Rousey, Lacey Evans, Tucker Knight, and Bianca Belair. Uh, three of those wrestlers are now released. That is Enzo Amore, Razor, and Occam. Um, Jason Jordan appears to be permanently inactive due to injury. Uh, Ronda Rousey, in fact, may not be under contract anymore. She has not wrestled since WrestleMania 2019. Rousey is obviously a special case, somebody who did not come through NXT. So if you subtract those four, really five if we count uh, Jason Jordan, subtract those five, from the 21, and we're left with 16 active TV wrestlers who are pure PC projects for WWE. Obviously, there are many others who have varying degrees of previous wrestling experience before they came to WWE. But those are the pure ones. 16 left standing. Uh, 21 of them, three released, one inactive, another maybe released also in the form of Ronda Rousey. And finally, some closing thoughts. I will close and leave you with uh, a note on Impact Wrestling as I revisited it. I thought the Kenny Omega and uh, Don Callis promo was good, which closed the show. My note is really about the other 48 minutes. So I, like many, watched a full episode of Impact for the first time in forever on Tuesday. And so many on screen looked sunburnt, literally or figuratively. It felt like it's produced and performed by a team of largely Florida resident WWE cast-offs or WWE tryouts. It feels like their ongoing audition tape to get the jobs they still want or that they never got hired for. The wrestling itself, from Bell until the finishes, was largely good. There are obviously many talented wrestlers in Impact Wrestling. But in their faces and in the performances and the overall presentation of the show, you can see the attrition of the business on everyone. Tommy Dreamer is somehow still on TV in 2020, looking homeless as people who were born after ECW folded are now entering the P18-49 demo. The show reeks of old relationships and of people who have become so proficient at being on the road so machine-like in their ceaseless output of entertainment services that they've reduced wrestling to widgets. Stamping out the next product with ample skill apparent, decades of experience, but no life. Sammy Callahan cut a promo that defies parody, the epitome of the shallowest skimming of modern wrestling. Snarred delivery, pronouncements about one's drawing power and mic work, and in-ring performances. You can practically see the indents that have been made on these performers' brains. They've deeply assumed an ideal, installed by their unquestioned elders, about what wrestling is. And here they were on this night, and maybe weekly, trying to act out this ideal of what wrestling is. Yet they're so consumed, so automatically configured to strive for those ideals, that they never allowed us to know themselves, the real humans, the authentic and breathing personalities. I know on this network, Rich Kreich uh, questioned who this hodgepodge show is even for. And I think I know. It's a show made for a man who's certainly not watching it. It's a show made for Vince 
and the sycophantic corporatist faux knowledge that descends from his creative aura. Supposing this edition was not an anomaly, uh, Impact appears to be a show produced for reflection-free capitalist assumptions about what will get one ahead in the wrestling business. At least before 9.48pm, nowhere in the program did I recognize much that would connect with the human audience. Nowhere did I see authentic humanity, nor much free creative thought. Just some talented wrestlers otherwise eagerly and thoughtlessly lapping up the McManified drunk juice that we've been made to believe we absolutely must chug if we want to stay hydrated. There were angles in every segment, because it's been hammered into us that that's what you do in wrestling to create interest. We've accepted the inherited wisdom from our predecessors, and likewise for the most atrocious backstage acting skits. Asking wrestlers to be actors rather than wrestlers. You have to just stand back and be in awe that this company exists. After all the carny hucksters and Howell pitchmen who've slashed their claws through it since 2002, the Jarretts, the Russos, the Carters, the Hogans, the Gaburiks, the Aeroluxes, the financial peril and various ownership structures. And it lives. And after all these years, it's still bad. Just cockroach and nuclear warlike in its invincibility and unwantedness. And really, as I watch a lot of these sort of uh, other wrestling brands, alternative wrestling brands, I guess, or secondary wrestling brands that are trying to find a place in wrestling, uh, I am reminded of the James Carvel quote, where he said, it's the economy, stupid. And I think we're in wrestling, sort of in this uh, place where a lot of wrestling companies are not differentiating themselves from the other wrestling options. I think if you're going to be a if you're going to be a wrestling startup and you're going to make a big play at media and you're not just going to be a small independent company, uh, you have to have some sort of superpower that is going to differentiate you from the rest of the options. New Japan had a lot of success in the U.S. market over the last few years because it had the superpower of delivering a great in-ring product in a in a sports-like fashion to an audience that was uh, very hungry for something like that. There proved to be, at a minimum, a niche audience that was really eager to find something like that. Great in-ring quality, and I think sports-like presentation is an essential piece of that. You might say Lucha Underground, which did not live beyond season four and in fact season four seemed to be you know by far the the less the least popular of the four i mean its superpower was to really go all in on this sort of theatrical entertainment approach to wrestling and i'm not sure what the point of differentiation is for a lot of the other wrestling brands that are out there it's not enough to take lesson from WWE or what other high-profile wrestling companies are doing or have done to find a niche even for a short time there has to be at least one aspect of what you do that excels far ahead of what anyone else can do it's not enough anymore to simply produce content and get it distributed and generate revenue streams as a result this is not the old live event business or the old information-insulated world. And the lessons of the old business did not teach us how to deal with the problems today. Didn't teach us how to separate good criticism from bad criticism. And I see this from the, the lowest level indie all the way up to WWE. And that you can always find a million reasons why a show didn't work out or why a company didn't work out. It's because the ticket sellers didn't sell enough tickets... It's because the right business deal didn't come along. It's because you didn't advertise it and market it well enough. It's because of the oil crisis. It's because of COVID. It's because there's no fans in attendance. It allows us to ignore the obvious and to avoid looking inward. And this week should have given us some hints. 
if you give people a reason to want to see your show. Not because you do a million angles, but if you really give people a reason to care. You consistently put on a show that is well-received. Business will pick up. It's like James Carville said. It's the content, stupid. Get the notebook at patreon.com slash WrestleNomics. Follow WrestleNomics on Twitter at WrestleNomics. Follow me at Brandon Thurston. I'm Brandon Thurston, and I'll talk to you next time.